Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Very pleased to say that joining us here in New York City is Dara Mayer, HSBC's U.S. Head of FX Strategy. Good morning to you, Dara. Morning. In just a moment, when Tom Keane's finished doing his hair, he'll join us <laughs> on Bloomberg Radio. What are you doing over there? It, it, they, they put in this pillar. Thank you for all the comments on our beautiful new studio, the Interactive Brokers Studio. We had huge comments yesterday, John. And yeah. some photos. Uh, Chris Roush down at uh, Carolina wrote us up in Talking Biz News. And I noticed and did you that see the mirror they put I, behind I, me? I, so I noticed I that continue to none see. of the articles writing about the new studio mentioned your mirror behind your it's mic position, exquisite. which at the moment you're staring at. It, well, you, of course. Are you this, are you this vein at home? Do you compete for mirror time with Mrs. Keene? No, no, no. Afterthought, though, has the new mirror. Oh, right. You know, okay. I put a mortgage payment in. What am I meant to do with this for the next two hours? I, I don't talk to Dara about the dollar. He's got I, an I, out I, of I intent to, can, can I do actually, that now? Are you going to really engage? Cool are you going to focus on the market just quickly? Yeah. yeah? Okay. You're in? Great. No, Let's okay. get to the note. Okay. The consensus is consistent on the dollar, consistently wrong it seems. Having missed the rally in April, the median forecast is for the dollar to weaken by 7% in the coming year according to Bloomberg data. While this is a medium term view, we believe it is fostering an attitude of denial. That's the research from HSBC. Who is wrote that? that? What, who did write that? That may have been me. Come on, Dara. <laughs> What's the takeaway at the moment? Why is that your takeaway right now? Well, because I, I do think that just constantly the markets looked at the dollar rally uh, that we've had since the end of April, and they said, well, that doesn't make sense. I, I think it does, but they said it doesn't make sense, so therefore I want to sell into it. So, and it's, it's created this positioning, tactical positioning, where we're always looking for an opportunity to sell the dollar. When I go and see clients, they don't say, hey, do you, let's, how much further do you think this dollar rally can go? It's always, is now the time to sell? Is now the time to sell? And I think that's the problem. It's created this bias in the background. I suspect because a, do, a strong dollar kills the whole EM story, which yep. they're all desperate to work. Um, and I think that's the problem because it, it's, it hasn't been working for some EM of, of late. Well, there's some signs at the moment that the long US versus EM crowd that started to emerge over the last couple of months, they're itching to pivot. And there's some signs right now that they're pivoting. Are you saying they're going to get burnt? Well, I think they're at risk, um, particularly if, if, it's, if they're relying on the dollar weakness has been a key leg of that equation. I mean, great if you get reduced EM risk for whatever reason, polit political developments, growth, trade wars, whatever. Uh, but if they're relying on, on dollar weakness when the Fed is going to tighten and continue to tighten along the dots, I, I just don't see where, where you get there. The rate story is a bit of a pain trade right now. I was looking at tens, the US versus Germany on a 10-year maturity. Fresh whites, fresh multi-decade whites. And everyone's yeah. looking for that convergence to push up euro dollar, for rates to move in the euro's favor. Are you saying that's not going to happen? It doesn't feel like it, but you know what's weird? Even just yesterday, we had a, a push-up in U.S. yields. You, you know, Tom's talked yeah. about it, you've talked about it, and the dollar didn't move with it. Yeah. And it, it, it's created a twitchiness, I think, in the market that are we for a rerun of 2017? You know, are we for a rerun where rates seem to say the dollar's yeah. going higher, but the dollar's not going I, higher? I think John's That's insight the there is just critical. I mean, the idea here, the yield folks of the United States, and John, would you take Germany as compared to the yield of Germany is as wide as it's been since basically time began. Since records began. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. On and a 10-year maturity, it's 259 basis this points. This screams instability, right? I mean, the yeah. green book of the IMF, it screams instability, right? 
Well, it certainly screams divergence. I mean, honestly, you could you could say that that's as much as we're seeing. Uh, but what it what it points to me is, you know, the, the Fed is delivering and the ECB is snow plowing, snow plowing rate expectations further and further into the future, as there are many other central banks. So it's a peculiar divergence, but it's, and I think one the market always thought would close and it just yeah. hasn't happened. But hasn't you touched happened. on something important. In 2017, rate differentials weren't the dominant story right. driving euro dollar. Why is 2018 different? Why does it stay different? I think, well, one of the reasons it was different in 2017 was, if you remember, inflation in the US was undershooting, but the Fed were still able to tighten because the dollar was weaker. You know, there was an offset there in terms of what it did to monetary conditions. At the moment, uh, it feels different because you obviously don't have inflation undershooting. The US economy is is growing pretty strongly, Um, whereas in the Eurozone, core inflation, 1%. 1%. So um, I think that's a key difference. And also, I think in terms of how the market's positioned. In 2017, the market thought the dollar should be stronger in rate differentials, and it yep. wasn't, so they got killed. And now they think it shouldn't be stronger. Where, where's your big figure call right now? I mean, dollar, and you say yen's not going to move that much versus the dollar. But if I really want to make a big figure opportunity, which EM is the one that's most vulnerable as compared to dollar strength? Honestly, Tom, it's going to be the usual suspects. It's Argentina, it's Brazil. Argentina at a 40, and it hasn't given it back, yeah. is going to move out to even weaker. Well, we got it at 50. 5 0. Five, 10 zero. big figures. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind, look, that's what, a 20%, 20% move, but a lot of that yeah, will be inflation. Yeah, oh, but that's you know? important for John Farrell because he's yeah. usually leveraged 7 to 1. When <laughs> I thought we were both in an all-cash portfolio, the leveraged cash portfolio. I thought that's what we <laughs> no, both No, no, I'm in the double-leveraged all-cash You're in the double-leveraged all-cash ETF. See, good to see a bit of risk appetite around the, around the yes, table. Oh, yeah, Ton, tons of risk appetite here in Bloomberg <laughs> Surveillance. Um, Dara, just looking at the situation in the United States, there was a fear through 2017 that high yields would be a Accompanied by a weaker dollar. That's the dynamic we see right now. And I think the narrative that's going to quickly emerge, and I'm already hearing it, is that to finance the fiscal deficit in the United States, to attract the foreign capital, you can have one or the other or both. And essentially, it's high yields and a weaker dollar. And the weaker dollar is going to, what, what is going to what it, be what it takes to attract the foreign capital. Does that narrative start to emerge again? It, it could. It could. But... It's the structural story. That, so this is the thing. That, that's the structural line on a, on a fiscal deficit. The cyclical line on a fiscal deficit is, hey, it's giving us tremendous growth. It, it's inflationary. It's, it's supporting a Fed that wants to tighten through neutral. It will force the rates market to say, actually, they're going to deliver. So look, there is, so there is an offset, and you have to decide which one's going to be dominant. I mean, to my opinion, and the evidence the last few months has been the cyclical side of that equation is the dominant one, the structural one, really in the background. Well, within this, and again, you know, the strong dollar call, can you fold it into equity markets? HSBC, we talk about Steve Major, we talk about Darrell Meyer, but bring it over to equity markets and what it means. Well, for me, what it means is I'm going to see a lot more equity clients. You know, there used to be the time where I go out marketing and right. I just see a bond guy or I just see an FX guy. Now the equity right. fund managers want to speak to me because they recognize that this is a swing factor. This could be a chief determinant. I don't want to call the equity, make no. the equity call. But that, that's and definitely a point of interest. Dying to get along emerging market equities. Yeah. Dying. And, and I think a lot for of most people, people yeah. the, the prerequisite, yeah. the prerequisite for that to succeed, as UBS yeah. pointed out, is a weaker dollar call. Jeremiah, HSBC, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. Right now, uh, speaking to us on policy, Terry Haynes, and as we do, Terry, all policy in Washington bounces off 
the mood of the president, which is on oil. It's too high. Do we have a U.S. energy policy inside the Beltway? Uh, I think the energy policy would be expressed by the president and Republicans as drill, baby, drill, and by the Democrats as yeah. uh, don't do any of that stuff. So we don't really, I mean, I, I remember talking years ago to various secretaries of energy. We, I mean, I think it's a mystery to a lot of people. We really don't have a view on energy as a nation. It's just sort of left up to private enterprise to figure it out, right? Well, it is, yeah, but in part because the the circumstances have changed greatly. I mean, uh, people of of our vintage think of uh, you know energy is scarce and all the rest, and now we're to the point where the United States is a net exporter uh, yeah. of oil and the like. So it's a very different situation I mean, than it was when that first got the uh, got to be the vogue. John, you go back ten, twenty years here, and there was this raging debate about energy, and a lot of people yeah. would say the reason we succeeded. It's because we didn't have a Washington-based I remember, energy policy. I remember you saying on Bloomberg Surveillance TV many, many years ago, Saudi America. Do you remember when we had the big shell boom, Saudi America, and we started referring to the yeah. country as that? And, yeah. and I just wonder, Terry, you remember whether, that? whether the, I do, God, whether, you un, whether the United States is actually entitled to do its best to influence the cartel which is OPEC, at a time where actually the United States is a major oil producer and one of the biggest on the planet. Uh, entitled, sure. Uh, you know, it, you know the, 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 the bump up of uh, sovereign nations and, uh, and trading blocks is, is always open for, uh, uh, for influence. So, yeah, absolutely. Why not? It, it just seems that the president's also intent on trading foreign policy for help on the eco side. We saw that with China and North Korea. Is that what we're seeing now with Saudi Arabia and think, the Middle East? Yeah, I think a little bit. But uh, and again, I think that's always been true, too. The uh, you know, geopolitics always plays a role in the uh, in the domestic policies of the United States, and that's no less true today. What are you looking at? I want to ask an open question here. You're a, a grizzled veteran of the Washington scene. You've um, I, you've got a brass plaque on a chair at the Hay Adams, right? For lunch, <laughs> you know, in the lunchroom there. Uh, I adore the Hay Adams, but no. <laughs> okay, well, they do a good salad. The iced tea is ex- everybody in the room, John. You go in the Hay Adams. There's 60 hitters in the room. What's like the Haynes. Hay Adams? Oh man, Hay Adams is. This, we we could go an hour on the joint house of Hay and Adams. John Hay, our iconic Secretary of State. Panama Canal and all that, tore it down, and they built a hotel. Right. Okay, and that's where guys like Terry Haynes go. And you. <laughs> no, no, I've never been there. You know, don't, Reto, keeper of the Amex is listening to this. But at the Hay Adams, what are they talking about right now? Into the election, what's the theme? Open question, Terry Haynes. Uh, the th- well, the theme is that the the result is very, very uncertain. Uh, you know, you've got a very- I would say both ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got a very evenly divided country, and, and you know, this, this plays out, you, you can see this playing out a lot of ways in public, from individual races to the uh, the Kavanaugh matter, all kinds of things, where, uh, you know, a very evenly divided country and a very evenly divided Congress, and, uh, and uh, these parties are pushing forward and backward against each other uh, very strongly, and uh, with, a, you know, with a very open question yeah. about who's going to prevail. From speaking to many investors on a regular basis and getting in touch with what our audience really cares about, I think the number one thing that many people listening right now are worried about who have money in this market is the prospect for policy rollback. What is the prospect of policy rollback? And talk to me about that through the prism of the midterms coming up. Yeah, of course. The 
the, the short answer is that policy rollback is very, very unlikely in any of the three scenarios. And today I have as my 60% base case, a very small Democratic majority in the House of 10 seats or less, a, a slightly increased Republican Senate. In that circumstance, I think how markets will, will react initially is, is a concern about whether or not there will be policy rollback. And they will, they will understand very quickly uh, that that is not possible uh, in a First of all, in a divided government, but secondly, where uh, the Democrats themselves are going to be riven between progressives and centrists, who the centrists will probably be responsible for giving them a, the small majority. Uh, and a lot of those people are uh, much more business friendly. Uh, they are many of them pledge not to vote for uh, Nancy Pelosi as speaker, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so I think that there there will be an understanding very early on that divided government will not roll back anything. It won't uh, it won't allow for another uh, well you know tax bill or anything like that. But there won't be a rollback and it will stay. Okay, away from impeachment and all the other mm-hmm. you know the sturmending of of cable news. You're suggesting that the new Democrats will lessen or dampen the progressive Democrats need to get things done if the house takes over i am interesting what kind of democrats are these new democrats are they scoop jackson hubert humphrey democrats or are they a new breed i would suggest they're a new breed it's 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 the nostalgia we have for maybe a middle ground republican and democrat from another time but it's not the same is it it's not the same but uh, there there are there are similarities uh a lot of people on the coasts, and again, nothing against the coasts. Uh, but go ahead. I can see yeah. the ocean from No, no, here, right. You know, I mean, not, okay. yeah, not, <clears throat> nothing against the coasts, but the coasts think that somebody like uh, Ocasio-Cortez here in Queens is a big story. Whatever else that is, that is not a Democratic pickup. That is somebody who, that, that is somebody who is replacing another Democrat. The people who are going to be responsible for the pickups are people like who we saw in the March special election in Western Pennsylvania, shale country, yeah. uh, Connor Lamb. These are people who are trying to actually represent the, the the views of their districts. And somebody like Lamb is, you know, not Pelosi, yeah. Second Amendment pro, all that sort I of thing. I want to bring this right over to England. Can there be labor pickups in conservative? I mean, I, I think Terry's observation on America is really apt. Can labor take a seat from conservatives? The, the interesting thing about the United Kingdom right now is not a traditional left-right split anymore. Exactly. It's um, very much about nationalism and populism versus globalism. And that traditionally does not go through left-wing, right-wing lines. I mean, that's changed. That's changed massively. And the political landscape in right. the UK has changed because of that. But I think, Terry, what you pick up on is really important. Many of our listeners are worried about a massive radical shift to the left. Um, Are you saying the socialists that are out there right now promising everyone a free pony, unfunded, they're not going to make it, they're not going to change the Democrat Party? Uh, I am saying that. I think uh, I think the Sanders moment has passed. I think there is certainly passion for those those points of view in pockets of the country in the in the Northeast and the, in in the coasts. But what's going to bring Democrats majorities and uh, and a continuation as a viable party are going to be the centrists uh, who don't share those views. Fascinating stuff, Tom. I think this is really yeah. really important. And and I also think it, it goes to Terry's point. 
that on the coast, and I will speak for London, this happened in the United Kingdom, when you're in London and you're reporting on a story like Brexit, whatever it might be, you were surrounded by a certain group of people and you have literally no idea what is happening in the rest of the country. And when we were going through the Brexit vote, I remember going literally a couple of hours outside the capital, back home to the Midlands, just to sit in the pub with my friends to get their thoughts on Brexit. And guess what? They had a very, very different view on the future of the country to my friends down with the cosmopolitan home of the elites in the capital of the country. It's a very, very different scene. And here in New York, you do get this idea that somehow these socialists and the Democrat wing are going to come out and revolutionize the party. Um, Terry, you just need to travel out to the rest of America, don't you, to get an idea of what's really going on? Oh, I think so. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, it, a lot of politics today, to me, looks like uh, the old joke about uh, university faculty politics. The, uh, uh, the, the, the fight is so vicious because the issues are so small. Uh, and so there's an aspect well, of that. But uh, it is by no means true that what, uh, what the coasts care about is, uh, is what anybody well, else cares about here. Terry Haynes, thank you so much. Uh, with Evercore uh, IS, I greatly appreciate this morning. Joining us now is uh, Sonali Basic of Bloomberg to tell us all about Canna Fitzgerald and how they have really changed their their entire business. Sonali, it's always a pleasure. Tell us about this story about Howard Lutnick and how he turned Cantor Fitzgerald into this big little guy. The big little guy, absolutely. It's been a real interesting journey to watch. I was sitting there last New Year's Day when Anshu Jain, the former CEO of Deutsche Bank, joined. And we were sitting there thinking, what's the plan? What's going on? And since then, they've hired some of um, the you know really, really prominent traders on Wall Street, sometimes paying more than $10 million a piece to bring them over from Credit Suisse or JP Morgan. And we saw them rebuilding trading desks, and we found out um, through series of filings that he's a billionaire. Um, so it's the first time Howard Lutnick. Howard Lutnick is a billionaire. Um, you know, people suspected, but nobody knew. And now um, we know that his stake in Kenner Fitzgerald has grown to more than about 60%. And so, you know, he owns most of the thing. And now he's also spending hundreds of millions of his own dollars to push it into new businesses, including prime brokerage, and they're financing hedge funds, especially smaller hedge funds that the largest banks are not really taking on. Why? Why is is he making that push into those particular areas and maybe you could just describe what has been their main focus. Absolutely. So, um, you know, prime brokerage is an area on Wall Street that, um, you know, the large, it takes a lot of risk, right? You do have to, to lend these hedge funds a significant amount of money. And, you know, talent really has been moving around on Wall Street quite a bit. So it's a good time for him to, you know, take a lot of people who are disgruntled at JP Morgan or disgruntled at Credit Suisse or disgruntled at Bank of America, um, who where they don't, want, you know, they're, they're really discerning about how they're spending their balance sheets. What's interesting here is we spent a lot of time about the future of Deutsche Bank or future of big European platforms. Here's a smaller firm. Everyone, I think, including Howard, would agree it's very entrepreneurial, almost quarter to quarter, definitely year uh, to year. Where do they fit in in New York? They're not a regional, decidedly. Where do they slot in with the names we know better? Well, for one thing, they're actually located across the street from Bloomberg's offices. So they fit in and they actually are right there. But they also, you know, you were talking about the big guys. They don't want to be one of the big guys. What do they want to be? 
they want to be the biggest little guy. They want to, you know, the one thing that he kept saying was he wants to be on a certain side, one side of the Grand Canyon, not the other. His biggest rival is Jeffries. Ironically, he's okay. stolen dozens of bankers from Jeffries in the last year, year and a half. Um, most recently, he, um, you know, took over 24 uh, power and energy bankers to build out an entirely new power and energy team. They're um, working a lot on convertible bond offerings as well. So esoteric things that, you know, you need specialized talent for. He also wants to get into real estate, or I guess he already is in real yes. estate, but he wants to get into real estate in a bigger way. Yes, people forget that BGC is part of the Cantor, um, you know, Howard Lutnick's empire. There's BGC and Newmark, and those contribute significantly to his um, wealth and and you know, to what he's really building. And all the pieces kind of fit together in, in a not so obvious way. But, um, you know, he, he does have these huge real estate platforms where he wants to own the entire structure of the financing um, of, of real estate. A little bit on the history of Cantor mm -hmm. Fitzgerald. And we always have to mention 9-11 when we think of this. It is everywhere in Cantor Fitzgerald. Um, Howard's office in it's, you know, studded throughout this entire story, but you walk in and there are steel plates from the building. Um, there are pictures of people he's lost. And yeah, at the Cantor Fitzgerald charity day, you know, Tom was there. You you go and, you know, there's a, a ton of celebrities and, and they're raising money and but you know, yeah, they, I'm not there like a celebrity. They just want me to <laughs> teach the new guys how to log on. You know, that's all. It's like a, it's like a technical call. What's great about a PIM is th there's a lot of these other charity days. You know, they're, they're all wonderful. What's amazing what Edie Lutnick has done is it's sustained. You know, you knew it'd be good for one or two years. It's actually gotten better over the years. Steve Buscemi and others have really made, the true celebrities have really made uh, a commitment to this, which is great. But what's the nature of the billion? Is the billion a nature of a cycle of the market? Or is there sustainability to Mr. Lutnick's newfound wealth? Well, that's the question. I mean, he's well over a billion, so I think it'll be sustained. But, you know, that's it's the, like Michael Barr, you know, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> and so um, the question is, you know, he has some headwinds on his side, for example, getting into the hedge fund universe at a time when volatility is coming back. Yeah. Could be a good bet. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a read of the day for New York Wall Street, and I would suggest for Global Wall Street uh, as well. Uh, Mr. Lutnick and Kenter Fitzgerald, it is penned, it is quilled, as they say in print. Tom Metcalf and Sonali Basek as uh, well. Bloomberg, you'll see that. I'll get it out on social here at some point. Pim Fox and Tom Keane without question our interview of the day on the equity markets Douglas Cass Seabreeze uh, Partners Doug we could talk for an hour right now of the dynamics of fixed income versus equities another hour on long Twitter another hour on what shorts could do all that cut to the chase yields are up Alan Ruskin at Deutsche Bank says 3.13 percent is a tip point we're at 3.08 percent on the 10-year yield how much are rising yields competition for the certitude of dividends and dividend growth? Well, I think our mutual friend Jason Trenner uh, coined the term, Tina, there is no alternative. And I say move over, Tina, look at uh, CITA, C-I-T-A, cash as the alternative. To me, it's really amazing how stocks are ignoring what you just described, uh, you know, a real rapid rate uh, rise, which is now becoming 
uh, even more uh, conspicuous. You know, my two le- my two um, idols, investment idols, Warren Buffett and Leon Cooperman, have been talking for years about stocks being cheap relative to bond market uh, yields, but that's not true anymore. And if you look at the differential between uh, the three-month Treasury bill rate, uh, 2.2%, versus the S&P yield of 1.75%. So we're at the largest spread, largest wide in a decade. So buying overvalued stocks because bonds are even more overvalued has the feeling of choosing a less painful poison. How about just being patient and not taking the poison at all? Doug Cass, what of the notion, let your winners run? I'm sorry? What about the notion of letting your winners run? You know, that's an approach that many take. I look at intrinsic value versus share price value. And when those two things widen, uh, when stocks are cheap relative to intrinsic value or private market value, I buy. When there is a premium, as I believe is the case now, between share prices and the intrinsic value, I short. So that leads me to being in a short position. And if you're invested in an index fund, S&P 500, over 9% year-to-date, do you take your winnings, go home, and wait for a better day? I would. I think the, the ingredients for a market um, uh, drop are now in place. Obviously, you look at Tilray, it's, uh, it's indicative of overzealousness and overbullishness on the part of the retail investor. This is the cannabis the sort stock, of speculative Tilray. activity we saw in early uh, 2000. Um, investor complacency is on the rise. I don't know a soul, Pim, save the perma bears who are looking for anything like a large markdown in the market. Again, we have rising interest rates. We have a host yeah. of possible. <clears throat> Go ahead. No, Doug, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt other than to say I agree with you that the complacency is out there. When do you institute shorts into a rising market? Well, my approach, as you know, has always been to average into positions, both long and short. Uh, I don't believe I have a concession on finding the absolute right uh, entry uh, price level for both my longs and shorts. I've been in the business for too many decades to realize that uh, Mr. Market, um, you know, um, beats the heck out of all of us. So I average in, and it's sort of like a funnel. As prices go higher, I have larger positions on the short side. And conversely, if prices go lower in a bear market, um, I have uh, larger longs as the stock prices decline. I do think now that, you know, the first level thinking is how great the economy is and how great corporate profits are. And I guess I would say I'm at the polar opposite of Mae West, who once said too much of a good thing can be wonderful because there are second order impacts on interest rates and inflation, which affect the market. And the prime, if, you're, if you study Graham and Dodd, you know that the core foundation of valuation is, is the dividend discount model, and that mm-hmm. includes an expectation of future cash, um, cash flow coupled with an appropriate interest right. rate. And that interest rate, that discount factor or risk-free rate of return is rising and now right. rising rapidly. Pim May West will be with us in the 8 o'clock hour tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, along with W.C. Fields, Sign I'm me sure. Up. Doug Cass, is it expensive to hedge away a long portfolio right now? No, it's very cheap with the VIX low. Right, so that would mean if you don't want to sell, you could actually buy yourself some protection. You can buy protection, buy out-of-the-money options for nothing. You find that a lot of your investors are asking you to do so? No, 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 they know my uh, predilection and... Uh, <clears throat> towards taking outside-of-the-box yeah. positions. 
and um, you know I have one right now. Uh, uh, the market, the market, as you know, what is it? Tell has, us has has exceeded my expectation of a trading range. Right. I did think that the January high would be the high for the year, and we're basically at that. But I did not expect right. the last seventy five or hundred S and P points. Yeah, uh, give us an update on Twitter here. We've had a Doug Cass move fifteen to thirty, or Genius forty. You're a bigger genius, and then a pullback. What does Doug Cass do on pullback? I bought the stock at fifteen dollars and seventy five cents. Sold it in the high thirties, and I've been buying back uh, it back recently between um, right. I would say twenty nine and thirty and a half. I think there's extraordinary value in Twitter. There's scarcity value in Twitter. Um, it's amazing to me that Tilray has a market cap today which exceeds Twitter's market cap by two billion dollars. Twitter right now is twenty nine seventy three, up more than twenty three percent so far this year. Yeah, where was it? I bought it as recently as nine thirty six. Well done. I mean, I looked, Doug, at, at, at Twitter, and, and, and folks, we're biased here, of course, Bloomberg, with our relationship with TikTok, and I'm thrilled to announce Bloomberg surveillance streaming three hours every morning uh, across Twitter, uh, which we're excited about. But, uh, Doug, is that an international play, or is there something, you know, within the, the perennial discussion of uh, who will take them out? Is I think they'll be taken out by Google, um, uh, probably in the next six to 12 months, I would say that. I would assign a 40% probability yeah. to that. Google has the money, uh, $75 billion of cash, and has the market cap, clearly. <sighs> okay, now, Doug, we've got to go to where I don't want to go. Oh, no, I no, can no, hear no, it no. now. Baseball. No, 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 no. I think there were two reasons you asked me to be You got on. that right. One, to call me old-fashioned. No. Uh, so I figured I'd be a little more Dougie Fresh today. Yeah. Or number two, to talk about the Yankees. And I Doug, will remind you that on. they are not statistically out of the race. Thank you. I, well, I reminded myself that five times this morning. Doug, ESPN brilliantly notes that the Red Sox have given up finding the bat on ball uh, in September as well. Is Mr. Judge what's critical for the New York Yankees? In a one-game wild card, wild card playoff, everything is critical. Well, Mr. Severino and all that, but but I, I mean, I'm looking at a Yankee team with some momentum here in September. I'm not quite sure. It what ends the, Red the Sox... season ends a week from Sunday. Yeah, on I the thirtieth. Come on, I'm a Red Sox fan. I can't believe it's like flat Earth Society. I can't believe they won Tom, a couple after, times after the start of the season. The New York Yankees. I thought they go undefeated. What Tell do you think? About... What do you think about what? What do you think happens? Right. Let's say uh, what Yankees get into the wild card. They play the Athletics. And then who, the winner of that plays the Red Sox. Yeah, uh, I can only hope it's a coin. Uh, it's a coin to us. Any game is a, is a coin to us. Well, Doug Cass, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck with long Twitter. And of course, Mr. Cass, Mr. Cass, looking with caution. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.